Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. As the coronavirus continues to wreak havoc around the world, evidence is piling up to show that powerful forces have been working to keep it that way. My guest today is a physician from Texas whose medical license was briefly threatened because he prescribed hydroxychloroquine to his COVID patients. Hydroxychloroquine is a cheap drug that's been around for a long time that is proving to be highly effective as part of a protocol for treating COVID patients. Dr. Richard Urso is an ophthalmology surgeon and drug developer. He served as head of ocular oncology, ocular oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center of the University of Texas, was head of ocular trauma at Memorial Hermann Hospital, and invented the FDA approved drug Oxervate for treating eye wounds. He has also been in private practice for the last 16 years. In his testimony before the Texas Senate last March, Dr. Urso talked about roadblocks and disinformation getting in the way of his efforts to treat his patients. Let's take a listen. Mass lockdowns and waiting for a vaccine was an unsustainable model for our citizens from the beginning, and I was determined to help. Allowing patients to go on vents and ECMO goes against the, without treatment, I mean, without, uh, goes against the Hippocratic Oath, and I was not going to tacitly support this early on. Many roadblocks and misinformation stood in the way. <clears throat> and there's no doubt that COVID-19 has been a great tragedy for the world, our country, and Texas, uh, but it didn't have to be that way. A year ago, it became clear the virus was coming our way, and I have a background in drug development. I patented a drug that eventually made it way, its way through the uh, FDA, and I repurposed eight other drugs. I started looking, I found like nine things that might work. I looked at the old coronavirus literature, I found a gout drug that might work, I found a uh, a cholesterol drug that might work, and a transplant drug that might work, and many others. And I looked uh, in the literature that, that very day that I had put the list together, and I found that uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, was very much uh, treatable with, uh, in, in tissue culture with, with hydroxychloroquine, and I was super excited. Um, I was on a calls with every night uh, talking to docs around the world and eventually came down to Seattle, New York, and Louisiana as I came here, and I realized that just attacking the virus wasn't going to work. There was, this disease um, had many components. There's infection, inflammation, respiratory distress, and blood clots. We had to treat all those things if we were going to be successful, and I realized it very early on, and you heard earlier today somebody say, just, just before me, there's absolutely no reason why a doctor should let somebody get respiratory distress. The SATs drop to the low 90s, they need to be treated. The C-reactive protein, D-dimers are going down, they need, they need to be treated for something for blood clots, aspirin. It's not hard, this is not a hard disease. The hard part is you can't get past the hierarchy telling you not to do these things. This, is, this has been the problem. It's not a hard disease. I've treated 286 people, none of them have died for have gone to the hospital. I love all the drugs, let's say attack the pathogen, the monoclonal antibodies, Remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, has erythromycin um, is also good against that, ivermectin. And what I tell patients is, here's what I tell them. The virus is only replicating for eight days. And I tell them this, there's cars and car parts. Cars, can't drive, cars can drive, car parts can't. Viruses can infect, that's for eight days. Virus particles are all that's left. All they do is inflame. And that's what people are dying from. And so it makes no sense at all to not treat inflammation, respiratory distress, and thrombosis early. 
wait for patients to get to the hospital is insane. So I was very determined not to let that happen. And we end up in a tug of war about attacking the pathogen, which is ridiculous. So as you know, um, what we've adopted um, over time is like a multi-drug cocktail, and there's multiple doctors that are involved. We don't need just an infectious disease doctor. He's not the best for inflammation or respiratory distress. We shouldn't be just listening to an infectious disease doctor. That makes no sense. They're not the best at, at thrombosis either. We need a lot of doctors involved, and we need an ophthalmologist probably because we think we're smart, but it's a whole other thing. Um, but I got involved, and I was very excited because a lot of patients could not get treatment. And they were calling my office. One was a friend from medical school. His whole family was sick. And I treated him about a year ago. And I, I knew that what we were doing had to be a multi-drug cocktail. So I gave him hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, baby aspirin, vitamin D. And, I, and he was, couldn't breathe well. The, the dad couldn't breathe well. And I gave him an inhaled budesonide. I was so excited. It worked wonderfully. And I got on social media to talk about it. And immediately, about two days later, got a letter from the board saying I had to bring all my records. Um, and I was, you know, making untrue claims. And I had to stop, you know, what I was doing. So I decided that um, I wouldn't stop because I'm very data-driven. I had the data in front of me, and I knew that I would be um, um, vindicated because I had lots of information. And so I decided to continue. But many patients... Uh, many doctors, many other people were frightened by all this. And because of that, many people didn't get treated, and because of that, many people died. So when we say that the board did a good job, I think in the end they did. But early on, it was very frightening. I was very scared. I felt like my license might get taken away, and I was, I was frightened. Eventually, I think there was probably competing voices, and eventually those competing voices were through the influence of other people, saw that these were reasonable things that we were doing. But what also happened, it wasn't just in Texas. The NIH said there shouldn't be early treatment. Um, the Harvard-Lancet study, for anybody who doesn't know, two CV docs from Harvard fabricated a study. Citizen scientists like myself and Dr. McCullough put pressure on them, and eventually it retracted. First time in the history of my 31 years I saw a study retracted. A lot of us stood up and said, this, this is not true. So, and eventually, this actually led to the, it was basically the nail in the coffin for hydroxychloroquine uh, nationally, and it, and it became, even though it was fabricated, this is what got out in the media, that it was going to kill you. At that time, that was in June, I actually ended up in the White House, and I ended up talking about hydroxychloroquine. I, I tried to introduce ivermectin, and at the time, the chief of staff said to me, look, I need data. And we couldn't get the data through. We had publications we were trying to get through, and they were slow walking them through national journals eventually got published in July, but he said, I can't go forward with anything without data. So we were finding that multiple places we were meeting roadblocks. And, and again, because of that, early treatment didn't take place, and again, more people died. So I think, you know, as, as we go through this, I think a government has enormous power locking down. I, I have a bunch of papers on lockdowns, masking, school closings. That's what I first went to Washington for. I went to, they asked me to come to talk about school closings, shutting down doctors. I mean, it's enormous power. And it's coming between the sanctity of the doctor and the patient relationship for no reason other than, I, I'm not a political analyst, I don't know, but I know it wasn't right. And a lot of people suffered because of it. 
And the media bias is continuing, canceling the scientific uh, voices is real. I've had it happen many times. Um, freedom of expression is jeopardized every time I present something on YouTube or anything. If I just said what I just said to you, that's infection, inflammation, respiratory distress, and blood clots, and we need a multi-drug cocktail, censored. So I think that as we go forward, the elephant in the room is early treatment works and prevention works. A lot of the early treatment alternatives were, were really uh, beat up in the literature. And I'll give you an example. Harvey Risch, the top epidemiologist probably in the country, has said the chance that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work is one in 44 quadrillion. Chance that ivermectin doesn't work is like one in 62 trillion, some ridiculous number like that. And despite all that, the, uh, when the FDA and other uh, people come down on it, it wasn't just the Texas Medical Board, that wouldn't be fair. And as I said, I thought in the end, they actually were much more reasonable. And like I said, whatever voices were there, the calmer voices went out, and I thank them for that. But overall, it was, a, it was an overhang from not only what was going on here in Texas, but what was going on nationally that made people just too fearful and just said, I don't treat COVID. Okay, well thank you. And then, that's on the treatment side. There were other things that we did that we need to learn from. We had masks, we had lockdowns, we had business closings. We've looked at the studies, looked at the data. What is your thought on going forward? Should we consider those as, as tools to be used in the future or mistakes that we made? Well, again, I'm data-driven. Yeah, I'd be data-driven. Like lockdowns, here came out March 5th, Nature. It's the most powerful journal we have. And using 87 different regions of the world, we found no evidence that the number of deaths in per million is reduced by lockdowns. I mean, that came out in Nature. It's about a 60-page paper. Came out, you know, this past week. Um, when you talk about masks, the only study that almost RCT comes back this year says randomized control trial, the only one that was done, they didn't work. All right, that was done this past year. State-issued mask mandates. Actually, it's kind of interesting because the CDC just came out with a statement. Um, <clears throat> there's no statistical difference. There's a 0.7% difference um, with state-issued mask mandates. 0.7% difference. Despite that, they do recommend people continue to wear a mask, but the data clearly says that that's probably not that helpful. 0.7%, if I told you I'm gonna give you a candy bar, 0.7% difference, and I ask you to tell me the difference between those two candy bars, I don't think you could tell me. So I think in general, we talk about lock, lockdowns, masking, it doesn't make sense. And of course, in pediatrics, in school closures, you can easily see that kids are not super spreaders is the end of the, is the, end of the statement. But in five different studies, one from Switzerland, two from China, one in France, one in Australia, only one adult transmission that I know of took place from a child to an adult. So kids don't spread, we shouldn't lock down schools. I mean, the whole picture is not data-driven, and I find that to be a problem. I'd, I'd like you to get into those roadblocks a little more. Um, so what personally did you experience besides this uh, threat to revoke your, your medical license? Well, at first I wasn't aware of what was going on. You know, as, as we got further along, it became very clear to me that the, me the message was coming out of Washington was a very deliberately uh, organized message to create the impression that there was no early treatment, uh, that we had to do uh, contagion control, that we had to wait for the vaccine, and that any efforts at uh, trying to do early treatment would be uh, uh, thwarted by uh, several several things that they did. Uh, primarily, number one, 
was to discredit any early treatments as being potentially dangerous. And that was the first thing. And they actually carried that out with uh, putting out false data uh, to Harvard CV docs, as we talked about, uh, I think I talked about in the testimony, actually put out data that was fabricated from 95,000 patients, six continents, I believe 271 hospitals. Uh, the, the team they had was a very small team. And the very day that it came out, I remember getting on the internet and saying, well, I don't believe the study because I don't think you can collect that much data that quickly with all the requirements for HIPAA and IRBs that need to be done. I'd say you'd need a team of literally 10,000 people to pull that off. What are so, IRBs, by the way? Uh, you need to get an internal review board permission at any oh. hospital to get to release data. Like even for me, if I want to release data from my own practice, I need an IRB approval if I want to get published in any decent uh, literature. Okay. So that's a very part, that's a, it's sort of a regulatory part of the business that is so labor intensive because you have to wait for meetings and no one has a meeting on your schedule. Uh, they do the meeting on their, you know, monthly or uh, quarterly schedule. So I knew it was very fishy to me right off the bat. Um, then as we got further into it, clearly when we started investigating the team, uh, there was, I think, a topless dancer that was associated with four people in there, science fiction writer. Uh, yes, I know. Wait, uh, wait, Harvard put their name on this thing? <laughs> yes. So the guy who actually was the uh, what was the author. name of this what was the name of the study uh, I'll, I'll send it to you but it's the Lancet study that uh, that discredited hydroxychloroquine so I don't remember the exact title but the, the title would read something along the lines of hydroxychloroquine is not only not safe but it may actually be dangerous something along those lines. That was the Lancet article that was eventually they had to pull it. Is that correct? Yeah, a lot of us are basically citizen scientists like myself, uh, Jim Todaro. I don't, I think maybe Dr. McCullough might've gotten involved and some others uh, basically wrote, wrote to, the, to the editors and said, there's no way this data uh, passes the sniff test. We wanna see the raw data. And they never, they never produced the raw data, of course, because they really didn't have the capacity to actually access that that raw data. It was a startup company, four employees, many many of whom who didn't really have experience in in data you know in this field. They weren't computer analysts, so it'd been impossible. So they had to retract the study about two weeks later. But the damage was done at that point because the discrediting stopped almost every trial around the world looking at hydroxychloroquine as potentially, you know, one of the foundational drugs. And I don't want to, I don't want to say that we have one drug that cures this disease because there's, as I talked about in the video, there's infection, inflammation, respiratory distress, blood clots. We treat blood clots with, you know, uh, actually hydroxychloroquine is pretty good. It, it interferes with nutritional extracellular traps, interferes with platelet aggregation, but aspirin is much better. Lovenox is better. There are other better drugs, but it does give some assistance. So the respiratory distress, of course, which I talked about is, you know, we're going to use our regular asthma meds. Budesonide is proven in a randomized controlled trial to be effective. So we have multiple drugs and multiple times during, the, during this uh, disease process that might be effective. And I think the major message 
uh, is that early treatment is effective. It just, it's just basically there's foundational drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which may make uh, differences at multiple levels. But at the end of the day, even if we don't have those drugs available, we can still treat respiratory distress and blood clots and inflammation and do quite well and save most of the people. Now, speaking of Harvard, is this Lancet um, study different from this other study that was done where they, instead of using uh, regular cells, uh, testing hydroxychloroquine with regular cells, using regular cells, they used cancer cells? No, that's that's a tissue culture study. Okay, Where I'm wait, pretty okay. good. Yeah, that's a tissue culture study. Yeah, I just want to. I just yeah. want to play the clip before you talk about it. Let me play the clip for that. Okay, that's a fun talk. They came out with a study, and I'm gonna. Um, this is almost laughable. It says here, malaria drug chloroquine does not inhibit SARS-CoV-2. So this study came out this week, and this is in tissue culture. So I looked at the study, and I thought, that's interesting. I don't know what happened there, but uh, let me look at it. So then I saw KALU3 lung cells. So they said, hey, it may work in kidney cells, but it doesn't work in lung cells. So in our evidence, yeah, it can work in vitro and in, in, uh, in, uh, <clears throat> in, in kidney cells, but not in lung cells, right? So I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm so I, I worked at MD Anderson. I was in ocular oncology, and I, I thought about it. I said, I don't, I've heard of that cell line before, KALU3 lung cell. It's an adenocarcinoma. It's a lung cancer cell. So I called the, I, called, I, I tweeted, I corresponded with the author, and I said, you are, so, I am so happy for your study. You just showed one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen. I never thought I would see something so clear. You just proved that when viruses around and chloroquine is around, chloroquine will let the virus attack a cancer cell. I, th I think about that. So it will protect a normal cell, but chloroquine will not protect a cancer cell because they're de-differentiated, the, the receptors are different. I mean, think about that. So I turned him back, I said, thank you. That's the great, you, you completely misinterpreted the data and you hid the fact, they hid it. They put it all the way down. As you know, you have to look for the data set. So I found it in, in the appendix, in little letters, KALU3 lung cells. So this is the disinformation campaign that we are faced with. They put out a big thing and they said, oh, it doesn't work. They put it on Medical Express. Uh, you know, that's it for chloroquine. It's unlikely to work against SARS-CoV-2. We just proved it. No, you proved chloroquine is one of the smartest drugs in history. It will let the viruses attack cancer cells, but not normal cells. So you have to be critical of the data as doctors, because what we're seeing, and as, as these two people have just come up to talk about, is a massive disinformation campaign. And if you can't read through the information, you're going to be lost. But I think we, we go back again to the same thing we talked about earlier. Not only does hydroxychloroquine work in vitro, not only does it work in, in patients, and not only does it work in areas uh, where it's endemically uh, found in high usages, okay, we saw that, and it works prophylactically. So we have studies done from um, Nigeria, India, Portugal, um, Italy, where it's been used prophylactically. It works in every single instance, and it particularly works well early. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight that. That's the scary part for a lot of these companies. It's so effective It'll work 
against the flu virus. It's very good against any airborne RNA virus, and that's the scary part, and that's the tie-up for all this. It's a lot of money lost. In this instance, what had happened is another in, in, misinformation campaign is how I, how I, I wasn't quite sure initially because I had to read through the paper. And it was, you know, 26 pages and published in one of the more, most in, powerfully impactful journals in the world. And What's I thought, I think it was science or nature. I can't remember which one, but there was a very, it's a very powerful impact on the, on the, on the, uh, uh, scientific world when you publish in those two journals. And this is uh, Lancet and New England Journal being primarily medical journals, nature and science being more of the molecular biology side of things. Okay. So these journals, uh, when you publish them, it's very hard to get this material in. So I actually tried to get them to uh, engage with me. And I asked them why they didn't use regular lung epithelial cells, which I already know, like, the cell lines, the cancer cell lines are easier to grow. And, and people a lot of times are doing uh, research on, you know, a lot of the work we did, which I did some work on tumor viruses. There's, there's a lot of work done on that. These are not normal uh, lung epithelial cells. These are adenocarcinoma cell lines. They're cancer cell lines. They're very different. So if you and I, in a sense, did the same experiment with the same, um, reagents, the same, the, everything that we did was exactly the same. We might get different results on each pass uh, through the experiment because not only will the cancer cell mutate, but the virus will mutate. So just so you know, what we usually use for looking at viruses and antivirals is we usually use viral kidney cells for one reason. Viral kidney cells don't fight very hard. So you can, you can, you know, stick them in a, in a Petri dish and you can um, put in different chemicals to see which does the best job of killing the viruses because you know the cells themselves aren't going to fight very hard. So most of the results are going to be due to the actual medications that you, that you put into the Petri dish. So that's why that's the cell line that's sort of the cell line of choice when we do antivirals. Do Not you think they knew what they were doing? <laughs> Absolutely. There's no question. Really? And, and I mean, yes, I mean, Harvard. That's, that's two things that Harvard has done to, con, you know, to contribute. That's two major things Harvard has done to. Yeah, I can't remember if that author was, that author is very uh, famous, but I can't remember if he's actually associated with Harvard. I know the other people were for the Lancet study. I, I'll have to go back and look at that, but they, he, was very, he was associated with very powerful institutions and clearly another misinformation campaign because the, the immediate aftermath was the uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine were clearly, this was another death blow. Maybe they did work in normal cells, but they don't work in kidney cells, but they don't work in lung epithelial cells. That's what they tried to pass off. And really that's why I went online and said, no, you just proved hydroxychloroquine is one of the smartest drugs in the world. It'll let the virus attack a cancer cell, but not a normal cell. Um, they after that, they stopped publicizing that article because that thing went viral, like 4 million views. And it was, um, I, I just find it, I just find it really, really shocking. The lengths, not only the lengths to which they'll go, but the people involved in, in this disinformation campaign. I mean, it's quite, uh, it's quite shocking to me. You were part of a white paper 
that was done by a group called America's Frontline Doctors. And it was a white paper on experimental vaccines for COVID-19. And one of the things you said that I thought was so interesting because you really sort of, you, you really sort of uh, took it down to its essence in terms of the censorship. You said there were four levels of censorship, scientists, the media, big tech, and government. So yeah. could you address those for me? You know, what yeah. you know of each? Uh, yeah, I will. That's, a, that's actually uh, uh, what, who, how is this orchestrated and from what level and which is first is, is tough to know. I actually believe that um, the biggest uh, thing that actually surprised me was getting these attacks from, from the government. Uh, I didn't recognize how interrelated government agencies were with big, big tech, big pharma. So each one of these, like government, if, if, for instance, the CDC, I believe, um, receives uh, not only a significant amount of funding from big pharma, but they are so like the patents are owned, like the patents for the furin cleavage protein uh, on the SARS-CoV-2 virus, I think are owned by the CDC. The patents for some of the PCR testings are owned by the CDC. And what that means is a lot of people that are in the CDC actually have uh, small royalties that come to them, maybe $150,000 a year. So you have all this, this, this interrelationship amongst these groups, which I think in a sense, um, makes it very difficult because you get Fox watching the hen house. So what we're seeing here is the media is then used as what we call, I think they refer to as smear and a mop-up smear. Uh, I think that's the way uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Pelosi describes it. So you smear, let's say, smear me, all right? And then you merchandise the smear by publicizing it on some public website and that's called, and then you go ahead and then you talk about the fact that, and publicize the fact that it's, oh, here it is in the New York Times. And that's the wrap up. So it's, th there's a very uh, orchestrated attempt to discredit people and scientists through the media, uh, mostly of people who are trying to do early treatment and anybody who opposed the vaccine in terms of the major problem, I think, just so you know, with the vaccine is, is, is twofold. One, we've tried to apply a one size fits all approach. So in other words, not everybody is equally susceptible to the virus. So why would we apply this, this vaccine to everybody? We don't give uh, surgeries. To, I don't take a gallbladder out of every person because a gallbladder could be missing. We don't apply that in anywhere else in medicine. And one size fits all usually gets you in trouble. So there are some people who are more susceptible, as you know, than others. The people with comorbidities primarily. Clearly, young people are not susceptible to this disease. So as we look through this, the scientists, in a sense, are being used to many times say things that they actually don't know. So I'll go through them, but let me just say, like, for the scientists, they're okay. typically not like in, and I think I want to relate it back to COVID-19 because it's a little bit easier. The scientists that are coming out against COVID-19, none of them have actually seen a COVID patient. Like these docs who, who actually wrote the, the study, Harvard guys, not a, neither one of them had seen a single COVID patient. What are their names? Mera, Mera, M-E-H-R-A, and uh, it's, I'm, I'm suspicious. The papers are, Mera's the lead author. Okay. So at the end of the day, the lead author is basically the power guy. 
Okay. You know, the lead author is he's the lead author for a reason. Usually, it's either the lead author or the last author who's who's got the power in in the, in, in the paper. So he was the lead author, and of course, he's the head of CV. So he's got a powerful position already, and they wanted to use that powerful position to discredit this drug. So he didn't see a single COVID patient. So there's a scientist knows nothing about it. You know, he didn't spend any time on it. Other people collected the data and did all the work, sticks his name on it because as it turns out, many of these guys are very embedded with pharmaceutical companies. I won't call out the name of the pharmaceutical company in this case, just because it's been said many times before and it doesn't matter. It's just one of the, one of the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and they were very, very uh, powerful in the early uh, time during the pandemic at discrediting any attempts at early treatment. Um, they even had like nine out of 40 people on the FDA approval staff for their main drug, which is called remdesivir. So they, that's this, they're all embedded. So the scientists do their work and sort of, you know, kind of like the face, like a talking head, more or less. They're actually, they're actually usually not that engaged in the, in the actual research. Like the top scientists uh, that I would say on vaccines is Peter Hotez and Offit in the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, you, instead, you have guys like Bill Gates coming out who really doesn't have a background in this. But Peter Hotez had said early on, early on, he testified for the Senate and said a spike protein vaccine has a lot of problems, with potentially antibody dependent enhancement. And he recommended we do a receptor binding domain, which caused a lot of neutralizing antibodies and actually could work quite well. He's gone off on another path now and is doing it, but he's got no funding and he's promoting it. And it looks like he's going to get accepted in Africa and South America, where they're going to have a safer vaccine than the one we have. And I'm going to tell you why, because it's important. Um, that, that spike protein has a lot of similarities to our own human genome. The receptor binding domain doesn't. So by having all those similarities, what you call biomimics, it makes it much more likely to cause an autoimmune response. So that kind of covers the scientists. The media is used in a sense to create that that influence on 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 the regular person in the street. So all they hear is the vaccine is amazing. You need to get it. Uh, social distance, uh, isolate, um, stay at home basically until we get the vaccine. And when it's your turn, you go and get the vaccine. No, no, ref no mention of early treatment at all as if it doesn't exist. And I, I was saying in, in some sense, to me, it's a hypocrisy that we're not doing early treatment, of course, because one of the major reasons why a physician oftentimes may uh, be party to a lawsuit is because there was a delay, a significant delay in treatment led to a bad outcome. And that's exactly what's happening here. Well, then, it's very interesting to me, you know, um, actually, I, I decided I wanted to call you because Dr. Peter McCullough in his testimony before the Texas Senate kept mentioning your name and I kept thinking, well, who is this guy? I've got to talk to him. But I did an interview with McCullough and literally the same day, Agence a reporter from I, the, the same day that I that I posted that interview, uh, did this whole article about how McCullough made three false claims, is making three false claims uh, about- McCullough, you know, you, you know you can't touch McCullough. McCullough's amazing. It's just like Harvey Risch and McCullough, thank God for us honest scientists like Harvey Risch and Peter McCullough, who have, you know, Peter is, I think the, probably the most published person I've ever seen 
and he works so hard. He's very, very bright, um, incredibly good in, in his soul. And, you know, he's one of the most honest people you could ever meet and one of the most talented people you could ever meet. So they could, they could poke at him all they want, but anybody well, you know. You know? What I did was I brought him on again the following week yeah. to rebut that reporter. And then I sent the rebuttal to the reporter and to Ajas Basquez because it's important. The reason why I keep asking you for names is I okay. know it's important to call out the individuals who are involved in these fraudulent reports Thank because you. It, it embarrasses them. It embarrasses their their whoever is behind the institution behind them, and it makes them more reticent to do it again. Agreed. You know? So you have to keep that in mind. So that's why if I keep pushing for names and stuff, that's why I'm doing it. You okay. Know? Yeah, so, I I tend I tend to like that analysis that you just had because sometimes I'll just sort of big picture things, and uh, you're right. Sometimes you've really got to get to the nitty gritty and say. This is not a nice thing you just did. This is, this is. This Does is your mother know you're doing this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I really think that we have to think in terms of these are individuals making decisions about the lives of people around the world. And these decisions are deadly. They are. I mean, I just spoke to these two Israeli lawyers who have filed a claim in, in the International Criminal Court because they're saying Israel is being used by Pfizer, by, what is it, Bio, BioNTech. They formed a company in Germany uh, and, and, and made a deal with the Israeli government to, uh, to deliver all their citizens for the vaccine, okay? And then, you know, they would take, and then, and then they would take the research material that came out of it you know, the statistics and all that that came out. And that's intellectual property to be, you know, that they're sharing. They call it intellectual. And I just, I mean, it's it sounds like a nightmare to me. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of reports. I have friends there and they said they basically have created an apartheid between the vaxxed and unvaxxed. Uh, so if you're not vaxxed, you're basically a second-class citizen. Uh, it's very scary. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, that's, that's not probably gonna just be the only place this happens. Well, I, I mean, we can't get this information out fast enough. So besides, and, and about the media in your white paper and um, going after hydroxychloroquine and early and, and trying to suppress the early treatment protocol. I mean, in Chiapas, Mexico, for example, they have a, a COVID package that they hand out that they were handing out for early treatment. And they don't have COVID there anymore in Chiapas, Mexico. Yeah, know? that's a great point. I mean, so when I was in, in June, I actually was, you know, we were able to get to the White House. Um, I started on this quest basically back in March and got there a couple of months later. And when talking with chief of staff at the time, you know, I said, look, you know, ivermectin is another choice. Maybe we can go down that road. And what he said to me was, well, I need peer reviewed data. I said, well, we have data, really good data. It's a guy named John Jocks Ratcher. At the time, he's the only person I knew who had put together a really good case series in Broward County of about 400 patients where they had excellent results with ivermectin. And he said, I need a peer review. I said, they, they, won't, they won't publish it. He, try, he tried to get it through the New England Journal of Medicine and several other journals. 
and they slow walked it then turned it down and eventually he had connections because he was he's a pulmonary guy he had connections with a journal called chest and he was able to finally get it published i think they didn't get it published till Ju Ju july or august many months after we already had known that the that it had been working quite quite well and i think now as you know some of the data has been collected and sort of put into a meta-analysis where you analyze all the studies and the chance that ivermectin doesn't work i think is one in 76 trillion at this point wow and here's a really good fact for you chance that hydroxychloroquine has no effect on deaths and hospitalization is one in eight quadrillion at this point they have uh, almost uh, 300,000 patients enrolled in different studies that have been published uh, to over 200 and like 20 of them have been peer reviewed. Very good data, very good. So, but I don't, I don't like getting into a tug of war about that as I, I, I actually was in a Senate subcommittee hearing and part of the things that they were talking about was that let's go and talk about hydroxychloroquine, which Peter went and Harvey Rich, and they did a great job. But I had the, the idea of let's, Let's drag them out and say, let's talk about respiratory distress. How can that be controversial? Let's make, let's make collaborative efforts with the other side on what we can collaborate on because we want early treatment to be the, the primary source of where we go with this. And you know, at the time, all we could do is end up getting more or less into a tug of war about, about the, these one drugs that, and really all of us know that it takes more than one drug to be successful. Right. But that's what happened. It has it, to treat all the different symptoms that have, that arise, right? The yes. It, and, and, but they knew they were smart enough. The other side was smart enough to sort of drag us out in the middle. I tell people you're, it's dragging us out in the middle of the battlefield. Let's flank them with respiratory distress and let's flank them with, with, um, with things like thromboses. There's nothing controversial about that. Let's flank them with talking about inflammation. And then later, once we soften them up, we can come in and say, well, there are some really good things. We could do the monoclonal antibodies. We could do remdesivir. But we could also do ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. So I, I had that sort of strategy and maybe the physician part of me that's trying to create, you know, uh, one of the things I could say on here is in all my practice, all these three letter agencies, I've seen over 300,000 patients. I've never called the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, the Texas Medical Association, the medical board, a legislature. When I see a patient, I call other doctors. If I get confused or I'm concerned, I call other doctors. We've always been in control of patient care, especially early on. So it's yeah, but it's yeah, but what's do you hear yourself? If you listen to yourself, what you're saying is that your experience and the experience of other physicians on the front lines who have gathered data. And, and want to present it to help end this pandemic, to deal with these sick people, are being met with this huge institutional and powerful resistance, high level resistance. There's got to be a reason for that. You have yeah. to ask yourself why? Because they Wait wanted to go from zero to vaccine. And whoever died in between, oh, it was, a terrible uh it was a terrible virus and in your in your white paper you talk about this virus not really being you know you talk about covid myths right yes talk about those so you know i, I think the virus doesn't affect everybody equally you know so as there are some people who are more susceptible than others 
So in general, when we're, when we're, and, and, and there's a big myth that there's no treatment, which clearly there's treatment. So when we talk about COVID, the biggest myth is that there's no treatment for COVID-19 early. That's the biggest myth that we have. Second thing is that um, we need a vaccine in order to treat this thing. Now, what I'm finding interesting is another thing we talked about Israel. So the person who was there told me, if you had the virus itself right now, you get a three month reprieve. If you can prove you have the virus, you don't have to have a vaccine passport. But the people apparently that have had the vaccine, and it may not be Israel, I can't remember because the person I talked to has family in Israel and in Panama. I can't remember if it's Panama or Israel. I talked to her last night. If you have the vaccine, you get a three month, a six month reprieve where they think that you may either re-issue re, uh, another vaccine passport or you may need a booster shot. They don't know yet. So we're seeing that what we're what I'm seeing is not only do we need a vaccine now, but it looks like they're ramping up to get us another vaccine. Oh, well, the the um, CEO of Pfizer just said, um, first of all, with Pfizer, I think you have to take two vaccines, two shots. Correct. Initially. And now he's saying, oh, yes, you might have to take a third shot. And further, you might have to take a shot every year. Well, can I can I say something about that to you? Because what's interesting is this this vi this virus has like a copy check on it. Everyone's used to the fact that the influenza virus mutates really quickly, and every year you need you need an updated vaccine. This virus doesn't mutate as quickly because, as I said, it's got a copy check. So every time a copy is made, there's somebody basically runs behind and makes sure the copy is accurate. It's still going to have mutations slip through, but it's going to be a lot less. So I don't know if you have had information that you've heard, but right now this uh, mutation uh, that we're seeing the variants is less than a 1% mutation. And one of the things I've been saying is that, you know, I went and got my haircut this weekend and I probably look a half of 1% different than I did, but my family recognizes me quite easily. So <laughs> your, your immune system will do the same. Your immune system with a small mutation will recognize it. And the best news is that people who have had the SARS CoV-1 actually still have immune recognition of SARS-CoV-2 with T cells. Uh, and that immune recognition is pretty powerful. And it looks like uh, what basically that's saying is that even when the virus has changed by slightly over 20%, there's still the ability when you have this, have the infection, you have this broad and durable immunity. That's a, that's a actual thing, which is kind of really important to know. So well, I don't think I don't think we need those uh, vaccine updates for this virus uh, on the surface. I don't think that's probably necessary. Well, you keep hearing about this very virulent South African um, variant that's coming up and other variants that are happening. And so, yes, this might have to be a yearly thing. And but if it's one thing to have, I, I, the flu virus is not an mRNA virus. It is not an mRNA shot. No. So- They every, tried to do one. Well, a constant, constantly getting mRNA shots, I, doesn't that put you at risk for all kinds of other things like- The technology is pretty cool actually, but yeah, I mean, there, it makes no sense, in a sense you're, you're actually, you're actually having your body make foreign proteins. Sometimes those foreign proteins have very similar resemblance to our own proteins. 
So when you make a reaction to these foreign proteins, you may actually react to your own body's similar proteins. And in this case, it may affect pregnancies. It may affect, um, uh, you know, autoimmune phenomena throughout the body. We really don't know. So every time you go down this rabbit hole, there's a design. So this Moderna vaccine, I don't know if you know this, they've designed it in about 10 hours. They took all the data, they put it on a computer, they modeled it out, and they uh, and they designed it out in a very short period of time. I'm helping on a I'm helping on a CRISPR technology company, and we were just chatting uh, a couple of weeks ago about the length of time it takes to make a new protein. And I and so I I said, how long did it take? He's got a SARS block, which basically blocks the virus in the nose like a spray. But anyway, bottom line is that he said, no, he goes. You know, I was talking to so-and-so, he worked for Moderna, and he said they, they actually mapped theirs out in about 10 hours, 12 hours. He goes, it doesn't take long to do this. Of course, the fine-tuning takes a lot longer, but the, the actual, you know, sort of like the architect drawing up the plans um, of the house, you know, they have, they have sketched out pretty well, maybe in a day. Uh, but to actually, you know, to measure and do everything perfectly, there is some analysis that has to take place that, that's fine-tuning the whole thing. But they actually... Did the big picture view in a very short period of time, and actually, when you look at it, um, mRNA is is usually destroyed really quickly, and some people have designed some unique inserts for messenger RNA in the uridine portion of it that allows the body kind of not to recognize it as foreign. So I I, I think the technology is pretty cool. Um, well, cool maybe, but I. I mean, the Israelis were talking about some terrible side effects. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, because because like I said, this was, this spike protein has so many biomimics on it. That's the problem. So that could have been avoided. To me, that's what I was talking about earlier. If they could have avoided some of these biomimics, these things that were so similar to us, and they could have, they could see it in the design. The computer modeling will tell you, well, this is really close to syncytia one in the placenta. This is really close to you know, some of the clotting uh, things that might cause aggregation of platelets. These, these are things that can be looked at. And I'm going to tell you this, last June, I got involved with a pathologist and, uh, um, uh, and, and a PhD that's a virologist. And we went through this on Twitter a little bit. And we both, we all got sort of chastised and, you know, uh, told that we're going to be suspended if we didn't stop talking about it. Well, at the time it was more theoretical. But we could already see that the spike protein might cause thrombotic episodes. And the guy's name was Sorensen, I remember at the time. He did a great job analyzing the data. He presented, he showed it to me. I was very impressed, but we ended up sort of, we didn't, we didn't have a voice to tell anybody about this. Um, it's impossible. Everything's suppressed. Well, the other thing I'm reading about is that for down the line is neurological problems, mm -hmm. prion disease. So, so there is a, usually a unique uh, segment of the spike protein that if it folds properly, um, uh, it, could, it has a lot of similarity to a, a, a prion-like structure that actually is prion-like structures for the audience means mad cow disease, Jakob Kratzfeld, um, basically. Um, Turning your brain that, into a sponge, basically. Spongiform encephalopathy. So. You're basically gonna you're basically gonna deteriorate at rapid pace, maybe over two years. I mean, honestly, that's where we'll know something like that will be quite known. Now, just so you know, people who have got the virus itself are, will be at risk for it because it is in the actual uh, spike protein that the virus uh, has. 
but you may have a very small, uh, I don't know if the load will matter or not, but there may be a slow, a small contagion sample that gets in there from the, from the virus itself, where you get a much larger amount of spike protein being made by the messenger RNA. And the estimate is between 30 and 50 billion by some people getting that. Now just know that the messenger RNA is wrapped in a lipid nanoparticle that when I look back at all the studies, they neglected to ever publish anything on the ability of that nanoparticle to penetrate the blood brain barrier. Typically something that's soluble like that would have a good chance for penetrating the blood brain barrier, but there's nothing out there that says if it does or it doesn't, I could not find a single article on that. They, they check the liver, the spleen. They check. So whenever you do a study, like in a drug, yeah. so I would take an animal and I would uh, dissect the animal after I gave the drug and I check all the organs, including the brain to see, to see what the uptake was. Right. For some reason, I don't know if it's because it's a quote unquote vaccine that they don't have to do that, but that they didn't do it. I haven't seen the data. So it's, it worries me a little bit. So, I mean, looking at this whole universe that we're looking at right now, what is, just, just tell me, what is wrong with this, the system in terms of dealing with this pandemic and then forcing the, a virus that's, it, it's experimental gene therapy, really. What, how could it be made different? How could it be made friendly to the sick, the people who actually catch this virus? You mean the vaccine? Not, not even the vaccine. I mean, if, 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 if you had been in charge of the pandemic from the very beginning, you know, well, like, what I, would I, you have done? I think uh, clearly, like, it was a very simple virus to look at initially. I found, I found, I think, uh, let me see, I have it written down somewhere. I found like 10 things the first day. I found a cholesterol drug, a malaria drug, a rheumatoid arthritis drug, a worm drug, an HIV drug, a gout drug a transplant drug, a stomach drug, and a, and a hypertensive medicine that might have some impact on this disease. So I would have really put a lot of efforts behind early treatment. I would have taken my time with the vaccine. I would have never locked down the healthiest, never been done in history. The guy who actually did that, his name's Ferguson. If you look his record up, Ferguson, Neil Ferguson, you will see he's never been right. Look at his track record and since the early 2000s. He's over, he's, I think they hired him just to overestimate the amount of damage uh, that every, every pandemic might cause and or every epidemic might cause. He's been, a, he's had a horrible track record and that's who we followed that said there would be 7 million people die in the United States or whatever. And who is he? I mean, what, what position did he hold? Uh, he's, well, he had a fairly prominent position uh, and he told everybody to lock down and then he went, uh, he's married and then he was caught over his girlfriend's house uh, the, uh, about three weeks into the pandemic where they locked down in England. And of course that made a big <laughs> splash in the newspaper. So he's a guy who's, um, who you would imagine who overestimates. He's one of the people that we said, like, you know, the scientists who's probably in a sense, for lack of a better word, um, not honest and, uh, and, and, and clearly, uh, shows in not only his science, but also his behavior. Well, so, what about, what about Fauci? Well, Fauci's flip-flopped so many times and he's clearly knows what's going on. He's got a, you know, how he's used in a sense is he's the, he's the guy who's in charge. So if somebody comes in, they want something done, they dial him in on the patent. What does that mean? That means if this drug goes through, 
he's going to get $150,000 a year. From what I remember, I think he's got four patents on remdesivir alone. You could do the math on that. So basically, bottom line is he's brought in and he's dialed in in many ways. As a public official, he gets a good salary, but he gets receives a lot of extra benefits from from. Well, that's a conflict of interest, especially since I understand that remdesivir is not that great. I mean, I hear people talk about ivermectin. I hear them talking about hydroxychloroquine. I forget what the other drugs are. The monoclonal antibodies, the azithromycin, doxycycline, budesonide. So what I can say about it, remdesivir is the problem is it's, it's an IV drug. Uh, it has to be given early. And I usually describe it this way. It's like the, the cars and car parts. The cars, the viruses are there basically in big numbers for about eight days. This is all respiratory viruses do this. And then for the most part, they kind of break up. What's uh, unfortunately in this disease, it's creating this massive immune cytokine storm. So the virus is gone. So the bottom line is if you can't get remdesivir, in your body at an early time, it's IV, it's really not going to work that well. The virus is replicating about every 10 hours, um, doubling. What can you get quickly for that? Uh, well, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, doxycycline, azithromycin, and, over the And counter. I'm sure they're much cheaper because they're old. They're older. I mean, don't you think that there's a money-making scheme behind all this? You know, I, that was my initial thoughts. I, I really was. That was my initial thoughts. I, it just seems bigger than that. It's a worldwide thing. I don't. I mean, they took hydroxychloroquine off the shelf. Uh, and, and if you look back, you'll see in France, they legislated something, said it, they called it a poison, took it off the shelves in January or so. But the legislation was passed in October of 2019. A little suspicious. You kind of just see little, little crumbs here and there that make you realize um, you know, getting Trump out of the way was a big thing and having this, uh, you know, this is all stuff conjecture, of course, but clearly the science uh, is easy for me to, to see through the science as being suspect. Uh, it's, it's quite easy. Um, uh, the, 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 I'll give you some data, like um, the whole thing about, uh, well, I talked about a lot of the stuff, so I don't want to bore everybody with the data, but lockdowns really aren't that effective, especially when you're locking down the healthy. We should lock down and protect the people most at risk. Masks, of course, if you ever worked in a virus lab, which I did, you, can, you can't wear those masks. Why? Because for decades, we know they don't work. And the, the best data we have comes from the randomized controlled trials in healthcare workers and in community settings, which shows they don't work. So even last year. So it's kind of silly. We're kind of doing this silly dance that I think I mentioned it in my talk. In the, Do you think uh, it's about controlling people? and controlling it feels like way that way i mean the fact that we might even be having vaccine passports uh the digital ids all that stuff it, it feels that way I, I don't know if that's where things are headed um i feel like their civil liberties are being infringed upon uh you can't speak freely about science that's a little suspicious to me you know i've been canceled on so many social media uh outlets by just saying things that are very simple like i I can say almost anything about early treatment and say that doesn't meet the World Health Organization or, or uh, it doesn't meet our community standards. And I get banned for saying that there are many things that can work to help in, the, in, in fight of this disease and early treatment strategies. I don't have to say anything too specific to still get banned. So I don't know. I, another, I, thing, another thing that was very, very troubling to me in your white paper was how you were talking about um, yes that you, you have a you have a scale like uh, zero to twenty 
don't mm. take the vaccine. Yes. One eight of them. But the other thing that you said is they rushed to um, give the vaccine to all these frontline workers and who are disproportionately people of color. And so they are the ones who are being really subjected to the sort of experimentation aspect of this drug is what the implications seem to be in this white paper. Am I misconstruing that or is that correct? I don't know. Well, I think they made a concerted effort to hit the minority population with their celebrities, through their churches. So there's no, no doubt that the attempts were made and the uh, thoughts were, hey, we're going to we're going to take care of you. Uh, we know that things happen, the Tuskegee syphilis trial, but this time we're going to put you at the front of the line, which was meant in a sense in their minds to say, hey, you're going to have first dibs. Um, but it really, when you realize that it is an experimental vaccine, and I know more than I know then about the design of the, of the, of the vaccine to know that the design itself is a poor design for inflammation. So clearly the people who have a very good immune system that are more prone to higher, uh, to putting out higher amounts of immune responses and have higher amounts of inflammation are going to basically be at risk for thromboses um, because they because they do make it. That's why you're seeing these younger patients having the thrombotic episodes. I actually had a patient who had it. Um, he was about 80 and he had it too. I had he came in bilateral papilledema, and he had uh, a thrombotic uh, uh, central cerebral uh, sinus venous thrombosis a very rare disorder, which me as an ophthalmologist, I'm one of the people that treats something called a pseudotumor cerebri. And a good subset of those patients have these venous thromboses in the, in the brain. We call them venous- After the, after, the, uh, vaccine, after the vaccine? About 10 days after. And uh, oh. uh, he wasn't on anything that would have known to cause that disease. And uh, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, right now, I put him. It's an inflammatory process, so I put him on anticoagulants. He's still alive. Uh, I put him on anticoagulants and anti-inflammatories, because if people do get the vaccine, I'll say this for your listeners: if you get problems with the vaccine, it, it consider that to be an inflammatory reaction. But don't feel good about that. That basically that's what's killing people who had the virus. The inflammation can cause, in this case, when you get the vaccine, not so much respiratory distress. It can cause inflammation and trigger the blood clots. We're not seeing the respiratory distress with the vaccine people. We're seeing the, the blood clots. What about hyping up the, uh, the autoimmune system? Oh yeah, for sure. And we won't know that for a while because, you know, we, we, it's too early to be able to figure that out. Well, this is not very good news, but I want to stay in touch with you and uh, want to bring you on from time to time for updates. Uh, because I think that you are one of the truth tellers in this, this whole mess. And it's very important for people to know what you have to say and what you think about it. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. I really